Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. I hope you'll consider today pre-ordering my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Today, we're going to examine the subject of one of our most important stories that we've done on Full Measure. It's about vaccines, autism, and political cover-ups. So what makes this story about vaccines, autism, and political cover-ups so important? I think there are three key things. First of all, it's information that powerful interests don't want you to know, and they put forth a lot of effort and expenditure and organization to try to keep you from getting certain accurate facts. Second, most of the other media will not report on this topic accurately. And third, it's a subject that impacts so many people's health. After all, almost everyone gets vaccinated. This is a scandal of epic proportions. And if you hear anything about it, you're only gonna get usually a propagandized version from either reporters who don't know better or propagandists who do know better but are doing the bidding of pharmaceutical interests. First, a little background about my vaccine reporting because that too has been widely misreported either by pharmaceutical propaganda picked up by an unknowing or a complicit media, and that includes the smear group Media Matters, which drives a lot of it along with its many related groups. They're very much all in on the plan to controversialize the many scientists and the reporters who have factually reported on vaccine safety issues. You can draw your own conclusions as to why Media Matters, a political smear group, has such a heavy, one-sided, inaccurate spin on this health issue. The way groups like Media Matters work, their donors are largely kept secret. The background, and I'm going to talk about some things today that I've probably never talked about in one place before, just to help give some context that's important before we talk about the particular story. And I want to begin by saying that I, too, was always skeptical about rumors I heard of vaccine side effects. I never covered this subject, never looked into it. I'm fully vaccinated. My child is fully vaccinated. In fact, if anything, I don't know if there's such a thing, but I'm over-vaccinated. By that, I mean I always kept current on travel vaccines for work when I worked for CBS News and sometimes had to travel with the military on short notice to foreign countries. But when the military calls you up, they vaccinate you anyway, no matter what shot records you present them with. And they don't even tell you which, what shots you're getting. In fact, after I learned about some vaccine side effects and information I didn't know, I went back out of curiosity to the military to ask what vaccines they had given me on certain trips, and they said they didn't keep a record of it. Anyway, CBS first assigned me to look at this topic after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. 
and I had no idea I was going down a rabbit hole. I approached and looked at this story like any other story. Why did it come up? Well, after 9-11, there was discussion about reinstituting smallpox vaccination into the general public. We don't get smallpox shots anymore because the disease is considered eradicated and the threat that it could come back is not as great as the risk from the vaccine itself, which carries more relative risk than other vaccines. So the decision is not to routinely give smallpox vaccination. But the calculus changed after 9-11, and there were growing fears that terrorists would use smallpox as a bio-attack, a bioterrorist attack. So a program was started to reinstitute smallpox vaccination first among first responders in the U.S., and then it would be expanded to the general population. That's where I came into the picture with CBS News asking me to cover that story. And I learned so much, but I would say it was a good 10 years before I had a good handle on a lot of general information that I've reported. In the beginning, I didn't know that smallpox vaccine had some unique characteristics. Not only was it sometimes considered uniquely dangerous in the face of not a great smallpox disease risk, but did you know smallpox vaccine, as they told me, the experts, can be given after exposure and usually works. That's not the case with most vaccines, but that was sort of an advantage that the thought was there would be a ring approach. If a smallpox case were identified in a large city, there would be a ring around the case out a certain geographical distance and everybody inside that ring would be vaccinated. And that way you wouldn't have to vaccinate or put at risk the entire population Um, put them at risk of the vaccine if they didn't necessarily need it. But I digress. Uh, The program started, and immediately there were some pretty serious side effects and some deaths that led the government to stop the plan to reinstitute smallpox vaccination among the general public and even among the first responders. So that was my first experience with the notion that a vaccine may be more harmful than good, at least in the eyes of the government. I also was covering about this time vaccine side effects among our military, who were not only in line to get smallpox vaccination, but were getting anthrax vaccine that was proving among some to be problemsome. And they also get a battery of vaccines in general when they're in the military. They get them in a short period of time during boot camp in many cases. And a number of military folks suffer adverse events ranging from long-term problems to sometimes immediate issues, brain and neurological problems, paralysis, sometimes death. And I covered a particular case of a young woman named Rachel Lacey, who was in the military and suffered an adverse event after her battery of vaccines in the military. And it was unusual because she had a civilian autopsy done. Normally, when adverse events happen and there's a military autopsy, you can't necessarily get your hands on the autopsy and see what happened. But Rachel Lacey's autopsy, we were able to get, and it was public, and the coroner stated that the vaccines were a cause of her death, that she had had almost a full system meltdown, some sort of reaction or response to the vaccines. Most people don't get that kind of reaction but occasionally people do, including those in the military. And I also learned there's an entire ward 
at Walter Reed Medical Center devoted to vaccine injuries among our military troops. At first, the military was denying that Rachel Lacey's adverse events and death were from vaccination, but ultimately they acknowledged this. It was a long road and I reported quite a bit on that story. And I came into touch with and did more stories on other soldiers who had been accused of malingering or faking it at times, but also had serious vaccine adverse events. In some cases, their health was irreparably damaged. There were some deaths. And as I covered this story and began to make charts of the injuries and deaths that I could find among the military and the common things that happened to those who survived um, their vaccine injuries, but what sort of long-term problems they had, I wondered for the first time, and I remember asking a government academic scientist who had helped me with these stories for background, I remember saying, if occasionally a strong, healthy soldier can drop dead after their shots, what do vaccines potentially sometimes do to a tiny baby? And it was the first time that I understood that it made sense that sometimes there might be a response when a child gets a vaccination. And I remember the words of this government scientist. He said to me, I'm not touching that third rail. And I had no idea what he meant because I didn't even know this was a controversial notion. This was, again, in the early 2000s. And I hadn't covered the story and it hadn't been ginned up as the controversy it is today. But that was sort of the beginning of my trip down the rabbit hole. And I researched and read studies and spoke to scientists and found as Dr. Bernadine Healy, the former National Institutes of Health director, later told me the same thing, we found when you look at the scientific literature, peer-reviewed, published studies, and reputable scientists, there's quite a bit of evidence that links vaccines to autism and all kinds of adverse events, although you will always hear that that's been debunked or not true. And I was surprised to read it for myself and to speak to many scientists who were looking into this aspect, but became more and more controversialized if they looked into this area of study. Their grants were pulled. They were removed from their hospital as staffers. If they looked into this line of inquiry, the government would come after them and make sure they didn't get funding for their research. So this is a long road I'm synopsizing in a pretty short period of time, but I came to understand that vaccines, like all medicines, like all approved medicines, have some measure of helping people. And there is a minority, there's a dispute over how significant the minority is, a minority of people with any medicine, vaccines are no different, who suffer adverse events for various reasons. Maybe they have a predisposition genetically, or they've had some environmental exposure that makes them not respond to the medicine or develop the vaccine immune response that they're supposed to develop. Instead, they have a complication, they have a bad reaction. Sometimes it's sudden, sometimes it's an allergy, sometimes it's sort of a cumulative problem um, that can manifest in the brain. Anyway, lots of studies about this, lots of literature. But once I began reporting on these findings, which became very important as some legal cases were working their way through court, I saw this topic and my reporting on it and others because there was a lot of reporting going on across many news organizations at the time, I saw it controversialized in an organized fashion by different groups 
and pharmaceutical interests, and the government was part of it. I remember it was the first time I was at CDC when I heard a government official refer to parents whose children had been injured or who thought their children had been injured after vaccination. An official referred to these parents as nuts or nutty and kooks. And you hear that all the time now, but I had not heard that before. And I thought it was kind of strange for a government official to be behind the scenes using that kind of language. It just sounded unofficial to me. And that was part of a propaganda campaign that's now taken great hold. These people are called anti-vaccine nuts and kooks and crazies and tinfoil hats um, for nothing other than having had their children allegedly injured after vaccination. Remember, these are people who were not anti-vaccine. They had their children vaccinated and they became circumspect or pro-vaccine safety or yes, in some cases, anti-vaccine after their children were allegedly injured. And then I learned a little bit more background about the special federal vaccine court that exists, very secretive. You're supposed to know about this when your child is vaccinated, but nobody told me when my child was vaccinated that if you have an injury from vaccines, you have a short period of time to make a claim to the special federal vaccine court, which has paid out over $4 billion in claims to vaccine injured children and some adults. Although I think the actual population considering how many people get vaccinated, is much higher than those who even know about the court and know to seek redress or compensation there. As I started to look into cases that had been decided in the special federal vaccine court, which was created by Congress in consultation with the pharmaceutical industry, so that the vaccine industry, believe it or not, is not liable for the vaccine injuries. Those damages are paid by us, those of us who get vaccinated and get our children vaccinated, by a fee that's charged, used to be 25 cents for every dose of vaccine, that goes into a trust fund of sorts. And vaccine-injured patients and their families are paid out of this trust fund. Therefore, there's no liability for the vaccine companies, which successfully argued, as there were a lot of brain damage cases that they knew were coming against them, for the DPT vaccine and perhaps others. The vaccine industry argued successfully with Congress, if you don't give us liability, not only could we go bankrupt, we're just not gonna make vaccines and you'll be stuck with infectious diseases. So Congress creates the special court and it hears cases, it pays a lot of them. And it turns out some of those early cases that were paid on, that were called encephalopathy, which is a brain injury, many of those, if you look at the records, were actually autism. So they were paying autism cases from the start as the big rash of autistic children came to light after the time period during which the government tripled the vaccine schedule, the number of vaccines that they said children should get, and it's way past that now. As my reporting continued, and this was back when other news outlets were also still reporting on this topic accurately, We found out that the government, while denying that vaccines had any links to autism, had actually pulled a case out of a, what they called an omnibus set of cases for vaccines and autism, pulled a case out so as not to have to publicly acknowledge that vaccines 
caused this child's autism and secretly settled the case and paid millions of dollars to the family and shut the case, kept it confidential and secret against the family's wishes so that the rest of the public and other parents would never know that the government and its expert had explicitly acknowledged vaccines caused autism in this case, the case of a young girl named Hannah Poling. And the government, after secretly settling that, continued to insist in public that parents were crazy to think such a thing. That was a real eye-opener to me. In a more general sense, another key moment for me in learning about vaccine safety issues was when I was speaking to an expert with a vaccine court, a very pro-vaccine official, who gave me a lot of information and background. And I asked him which were the hardest cases that he had to hear. Mind you, this is somebody who supports vaccination, but understands, of course, like every medicine, there are sometimes adverse events and believes that those should be compensated properly. As for the toughest cases, he told me polio cases because he said that the last cases of polio in this country were all caused by the vaccine. Now, I had never heard anything about this. Again, the last cases of polio in the United States were caused by the polio vaccine. And he said, specifically, there was a case that he heard with the attorney arguing to this special magistrate. These are not jury trials at the special vaccine court. So the story goes that at one point, the attorney had the young girl, the polio victim, walk to the front of the court and show that it was difficult how she had to sort of swing her hip and pull her leg up. And the attorney said, this is the best she'll ever be. And then the person telling the story to me, the official said he looked over at the child's mother. And it's as if that was the first time it had really hit her because parents of vaccine injured children are so busy just trying to take care of the children with all the things that can go wrong with them. Sometimes maybe they're not taking the 30,000 foot level view. And he said when he looked at the mother, her head just dropped and she began sobbing as if this were hitting her really for the first time. And he said, what was so hard about it is that this was preventable. And I said, what do you mean? And he explained that at the time, the government was allowing an oral polio vaccine to be given to children here in the United States, a vaccine that carries a very small risk of actually giving the child polio, that there was actually a safer vaccine on the market, the injectable kind that carried no risk of giving a child polio. I was blown away. I didn't know anything about this. I read more about it. And I wondered why this hadn't made headline news across the world, nor did it make global news, at least I didn't see it, when the oral polio vaccine around the late 90s got pulled off the market for that very reason here in the United States. In fact, looking back at my child, who was born in 1995, I remember when it came time for the polio vaccine and the nurse or medical professional asked me, would you rather give your daughter sugar water or another shot? And of course, I chose sugar water, which was the oral polio vaccine. 
But I think the responsibility they have that they did not meet as medical professionals was they need to say to parents or needed to back then, would you rather give your child sugar water, which carries a very slight risk of actually giving her polio, or the shot, which carries no risk of giving polio? Well, you know what I would have chosen, and you know what I think almost every parent would have chosen, the shot. Nobody told me anything about that, and I've asked a lot of parents, and they were not given that information to make an informed choice about something that's so important. That's what the official meant with the vaccine court when he told me that these polio injuries were the hardest because they were avoidable. A safer vaccine was available, but parents were given the choice of a riskier vaccine at the time, the sugar water. There is so much more that could be said by way of background, but I will summarize this part of the podcast by telling you that, in general, medicine and vaccines are like other products. When they work, and they work well, they do a great deal of good. Just like tires, when I covered the Firestone tires that caused rollovers on Ford vehicles. I'm certainly not anti-tire, but when there is a dangerous tire, that should be addressed. I'm certainly not anti-medicine or anti-vaccine, but obviously medicine and vaccines should be as safe as possible. The government acknowledges that not everybody should take every medicine or every vaccine if they have certain predispositions or problems. And if there's a problem with the vaccine that's above what's considered an acceptable risk for the general population, that should be addressed. It has been in the past. Vaccines have been pulled off the market for safety reasons. This is not a controversial notion in of itself but it is made to be controversial to discuss and report on these things for very specific monetary reasons. We'll talk more about that with the full measure story that I've been promising to dissect with you after a short break. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We're back. Fast forward almost 20 years later after I first started covering vaccine safety issues, and it has become so untouchable and so controversialized, in large part because of the control, in my view, the vaccine industry has over advertising on virtually every aspect of media. So the media self-censors these stories. It began doing so after direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising was approved for TV, didn't used to be allowed prescription drugs used to not be able to be advertised on television or vaccines, but now that's the bread and butter of media companies. So as I've written about in my past books, such as Stonewalled and The Smear, we drastically changed as an industry how we reported on the pharmaceutical industry, not just vaccines, but medicines in general. We were critically looking at a lot of industry-wide problems fraud, abuse, and a lot of that stopped. It's dialed way back to almost zero through a sort of self-censorship because of these relationships. At the same time, 
as we'll discuss a little bit more in a minute, Congress has been largely controlled by the pharmaceutical industry in many respects. They used to do a lot of investigations about these very important issues of medicine and side effects and cover-ups and dangers. And that has almost stopped because the pharmaceutical industry contributes so much to both political parties. There's also the factor of the revolving door where pharmaceutical industry people get jobs in government so that they can kind of control, let's say, rules that get passed at the FDA, but then they go back after they accomplish their mission into the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry hires government officials such as the former head of CDC, Julie Gerberding, after she promoted uh, vaccinations in a way that some thought was not rooted in science. Uh, She got a big job with Merck, the vaccine company, And a lot of people think that that revolving door is inappropriate, but it's pretty rampant. And so you're not going to get, based on my experience, the full and complete story many times from the government or the media or Congress. Now, the full measure story that we're going to discuss, you can watch the video of this if you go to fullmeasure.news and search the vaccination debate. I did this story on January 6th. 2019, again, another story that should have made global headlines. I don't know that anybody else covered it. And I will go down the story pretty much as I reported it. As I introduced the piece, I said it was one of the biggest medical controversies of our time. And I said there's little dispute about this much that vaccines save many lives and rarely they injure or kill. I pointed out, as I've mentioned to you, that a special federal vaccine court has paid out billions of dollars for injuries from brain damage to death, but not specifically by name for the form of brain injury if it's called autism. And as an aside here, the vaccine court has paid many cases of autism, but not if it's called autism, only if it's called brain injury or encephalopathy, encephalitis. Well, in January of 2019, I was reporting on this remarkable new information. A respected pro-vaccine medical expert that was used by the federal government to debunk the vaccine autism link now is saying vaccines can cause autism after all. And he claims that he told that to government officials a long time ago, but they kept it secret. So the actual story begins with a little boy named Yates Hazelhurst, who was born February 11th, 2000. Everything was normal, according to his medical records, meeting his milestones, no issues, until he suffered a severe reaction to vaccinations. Rolf Hazelhurst is Yates's dad, and he said at first, I didn't believe it. I didn't think that vaccines could cause autism. I didn't believe it. And I think that's where most people stand. If you haven't read the scientific studies and you've just listened to what you've heard maybe on the news, you would think that this is ridiculous if you don't know the biological mechanism, uh, the way that this works. For Yates, the trademark brain disease caused him a lot of pain and suffering, the inability to communicate that's common with severe autism. And in 2007, his father sued over his son's injuries in that little-known federal vaccine court that I told you about. His father found out about it perhaps because He's an attorney and perhaps had more access to information through his research than the average parent might have. 
and Yates's case was one of more than 5,000 vaccine autism claims in this court at the time, back in 2007. Congress created the vaccine court in 1988 in consultation with the pharmaceutical industry. And in this special court, you have to understand, vaccine makers don't have to defend their products. The federal government does it for them using lawyers from the Justice Department. So think about this. The Justice Department, taxpayer-funded lawyers, defend the pharmaceutical product, the vaccines that are causing the alleged injuries, from the victims who are injured. And the money for the victims, as I described to you, comes from us, not the pharmaceutical industry, through the patient fees that are added on to every vaccine that's given. The hearings, by the way, are closed to the public. You can get some of the results of these vaccine court hearings later. Some of the documents are open, some are not, but that's just the way it works. In 2007, Yates's case and nearly all of the other vaccine autism claims lost. That's another story we'll talk about a different time. But all those vaccine autism claims, the whole idea of whether they should be paid, this big spike in autism among children could be connected to vaccines, the court said no. And the decision was based in large part on the expert opinion of Dr. Andrew Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman is a world-renowned pediatric neurologist, and he was the government's top expert witness. He had testified that vaccines didn't cause autism. He was the guy they used frequently in court to convince the special masters, their form of judges, that there's no way vaccines are causing this form of brain damage that we call autism. And the debate was declared over. As an aside, we didn't yet know that the government had secretly paid the autism case of Hannah Poling, who was part of these big group of cases. Anyway, Dr. Zimmerman, all these years later, as I'm reporting this story for full measure, had just provided some remarkable new information. He claimed that during the vaccine hearings all those years ago in 2007, he privately told government lawyers that vaccines can and did cause autism in some children. The turnabout from the government's own chief medical expert, a pro-vaccine medical expert, stood to change everything about the vaccine autism debate if the public were to find out he'd said this. I will mention that Dr. Zimmerman declined my interview requests I don't blame them. Anybody who speaks on this topic and is not on the correct side, they are destroyed, diced up, sliced up, and ruined. But what he did was he referred us to a sworn affidavit he signed on this topic. And here's what Dr. Zimmerman said in his sworn affidavit. He said on June 15, 2007, he took aside the Department of Justice or DOJ lawyers that he worked for remember defending vaccines in vaccine court. He told them that he had now discovered, quote, exceptions in which vaccinations could cause autism. He said, quote, I explained that in a subset of children, vaccine-induced fever and immune stimulation did cause regressive brain disease with features of autism spectrum disorder. Obviously, this was huge. This is the very thing that a lot of literature documents that you won't hear anything about. But this is one believed cause of autism after vaccination in children, including Hannah Poling. Well, according to 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is an activist on vaccine safety issues and helped convince Dr. Zimmerman to come forward with this information. Dr. Zimmerman, by changing his mind and saying that new science had convinced him vaccines can cause autism and that he'd even seen patients where that had happened, Kennedy says this panicked the two Department of Justice attorneys involved. What did they do? They immediately fired Dr. Zimmerman as their expert witness. In other words, instead of taking the information he provided and allowing the court to hear that, they erased Dr. Zimmerman from the equation, making sure the court would never hear his scientific opinion. And then, according to Dr. Zimmerman's sworn affidavit, days after the Department of Justice lawyers fired him as their expert witness back in 2007, he says they went on to misrepresent his opinion to continue to debunk autism claims in court. Records show that after they fired him, on June 18, 2007, one of the Department of Justice attorneys that Dr. Zimmerman had told spoke to the vaccine court without Dr. Zimmerman there and said, quote, we know Dr. Zimmerman's views on the issue. There is no scientific basis for a connection between vaccines and autism. Dr. Zimmerman says that statement made by the Department of Justice attorney after firing him, that statement was, he said, quote, highly misleading. I called the former Department of Justice lawyers and the Department of Justice to try to get their responses to this. They did not return our calls and emails. Kennedy filed a fraud complaint with the Justice Department Inspector General who told us they didn't have a comment, but it's my understanding that this has gone nowhere in terms of accountability. So think of it, after 2007, when the Department of Justice well knew their pro-vaccine experts' change of opinion that vaccines can cause autism after all, the government also knew it had secretly settled a case and paid the family of Hannah polling millions of dollars for the autism that was caused by her vaccination. But the government kept speaking out publicly, denying that that could possibly be the case. CDC's Dr. Ann Shuchat made a public statement, one of many made by the government after this period of time. She said, based on dozens of studies and everything I know as a physician and a scientist, there's no link between autism and vaccines. I tried to get an interview with CDC for this report I did for full measure, but they declined the interview request. And Kennedy, again, the activist, delivered Dr. Zimmerman's affidavit to political leaders of both parties on Capitol Hill. And that's when we come to another key part of the story, roadblocks set up by the pharmaceutical industry. As Kennedy described to me in this story, Everybody takes money from pharma, he says, so they've all been corrupted. Now, as an aside, I think there are a few members of Congress who don't, but he's making the generality that the important people and the parties take a lot of money from pharma. And he says it's almost impossible, therefore, to get any accountability on these issues on Capitol Hill. Now, Kennedy, a Democrat, is not the only one claiming vaccine industry money rules the day in Washington, D.C., this was a tough nut to crack, but I spoke to 11 current and former members of Congress and staff who acknowledged that they faced pressure, bullying, or threats 
when they raised vaccine safety questions as a matter of business. And several of these people agreed to appear on camera for my story on full measure. Again, this is something I've never seen done before. I, I don't think journalists, first of all, want to get people together to talk about this. And then it's very difficult to get people together to go on camera to talk about this. Republican Dan Burton, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, has an autistic grandson and says explicitly he is not against vaccinations, but he looked into this issue as head of the House Oversight Committee in the early 2000s. He said, there's no question in my mind whatsoever that the pharmaceutical industry had a great influence with people over at the CDC and FDA. There's no question in my mind. Beth Clay is a woman who was one of his staffers in the early 2000s when they were pursuing these investigations. And she told me on camera, there was a lot of pressure from people on the Hill. And I asked her, when you say people on the Hill were exerting pressure, what kind of people, colleagues? And she said, colleagues, there were pharmaceutical lobbyists. She goes on to say, the pharmaceutical lobbyists are entrenched. They can walk into any office in Capitol Hill and talk to staff, talk to members, and encourage them to discourage their investigations on vaccine safety. And I asked this former staffer, Beth Clay, at the risk of stating the obvious, why did they have that kind of access to members? Because you and I could not go up to Capitol Hill and just walk in and speak to a member of Congress or a senator or even a staffer. She said it's money. And if you look at the donations over the last 20 years, she says the pharmaceutical industry, Republican, Democrat, they're nonpartisan, they put money everywhere. I also spoke to former Congressman Dr. Dave Weldon, a Republican and a medical doctor, who says when he was in office, he got the message loud and clear. He, too, was trying to investigate this topic, and he really got shouted down, even from his own party leaders. I said, if you would want to hold a hearing on an issue like vaccines and autism, your own leadership might fight you on that because of the financial influence, the pharmaceutical industry. And Dr. Weldon said, they wouldn't fight you. They'd kill it. It's dead. They don't even want to discuss it. It's dead on arrival. He said, if you as an individual member want to take on the pharmaceutical industry, it's forget it. And I said, can you describe an incident? And he says, well, it would typically be in a hallway or the street. People would come up to you and say, you know, you really need to back off of this. It could be bad for the community or bad for the country or bad for you. Now, Dr. Weldon, like the others we interviewed, like most everybody I know, says he's generally pro-vaccine. It depends on the patient and the shot, of course. Not all people tolerate every vaccine the same. Not all vaccines are equally necessary, equally safe. It's like any medicine. He gives flu shots to adults. He administers shots. And I asked him to review Dr. Zimmerman's new affidavit at the time. And he said that Dr. Zimmerman's affidavit and testimony, Dr. Zimmerman's opinion that vaccines can and do cause autism in certain instances, he said that's consistent with his own opinions as a doctor, that some children can get an autism spectrum disorder from a vaccine. Another person I spoke to on camera, Republican Bill Posey, a current member of Congress who has definitely paid a price within his party for looking at vaccine safety issues. 
He said to me, I don't have to tell you that industry is a very, very powerful industry. Matter of fact, I don't know of anyone more powerful than that industry. And Posey told me that his own party leaders twice promised to hold hearings on the topic of vaccines and autism only to scuttle them in the end. Now, Hazelhurst, Yates Hazelhurst's dad, happens to be a criminal prosecutor. He was scheduled to be a witness at one of those scheduled congressional hearings that, like all the others, got canceled before they could happen. Two weeks before the hearing, this was in 2013, Hazelhurst was called in to brief congressional staff ahead of the public hearing, and he said, I presented at the congressional briefing. I explained that if I did to a criminal in a court of law what the U.S. Department of Justice did to vaccine-injured children, Hazelhurst said, I would be disbarred and I would face criminal charges. And he says, I think that scared the hell out of them. The hearing, the congressional hearing, was abruptly canceled. Meantime, Dr. Zimmerman, that expert that used to debunk vaccine autism claims and now says he told officials back in 2007 vaccines could cause autism, but they covered it up. He now says several of his own patients did get autism from vaccines, and that includes Yates Hazelhurst. The lobby group representing the pharmaceutical industry would not agree to an interview for the story, but issued a statement and said they are working with Congress and other stakeholders on the importance and safety of vaccines to support the health and safety of individuals and communities. One more short break, and then I'm going to read a little bit from Dr. Zimmerman's affidavit. We're back. I am going to read from Dr. Andrew Zimmerman's full affidavit on the alleged link between vaccines and autism that the U.S. government, he says, covered up. You can read this affidavit yourself if you go to CherylAckison.com and search Dr. Andrew Zimmerman or Zimmerman or Zimmerman and affidavit. You can see this for yourself. Make up your own mind. He started out by describing that he's a board-certified pediatric neurologist, former director of medical research, Center for Autism and Related Disorders, Kennedy Krieger Institute, and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He adds, for background, I was a reviewer for the National Academy of Sciences 2004 report entitled Immunization Safety Review Vaccines and Autism, which was prepared by the Immunization Safety Review Committee at the request of CDC, NIH, and Institute of Medicine. He attached his resume, Curriculum Vita, which is also on my website, and goes on pages and pages and pages of peer-reviewed published studies, very credible fellow. He says, in 2007, I was an expert witness for the Department of Health and Human Services in the omnibus autism proceeding under the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. He says, with the assistance of the Department of Justice, I prepared and executed the attached expert witness opinion regarding Michelle Cedillo on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services and Cedillo versus HHS. In other words, he's saying he was an expert witness in a particular case alleging that vaccines caused autism in a young girl named Michelle Cedillo. The expert opinion that Dr. Zimmerman issued states in part, quote, there is no scientific basis for a connection between measles, mumps, and rubella, MMR vaccine, 
or mercury intoxication and autism. He went on to say, again, this is before he changed his opinion. He went on to say, despite well-intentioned and thoughtful hypotheses and widespread beliefs about apparent connections with autism and regression, there is no sound evidence to support a causative relationship with exposure to both or either MMR and or mercury. We didn't talk about that, but it's a component of the MMR vaccine that some believe is troublesome that he was addressing. He went on to say Cedillo had a thorough and normal immunology evaluation showing no signs of immunodeficiency that would have precluded her from receiving or responding normally to MMR vaccine. That's kind of an interesting aside that we didn't talk about. There he's saying that children who have signs of an immunodeficiency might be precluded from getting MMR vaccine. I bet you never heard that. Nobody ever asked uh, me when my child got MMR vaccine if she had been screened for you know, any immunodeficiencies. Dr. Zimmerman in his affidavit goes on to state that his expert opinion regarding Michelle Cedillo before he changed his mind was, furthermore, there is no evidence of an association between autism and the alleged reaction to MMR and mercury, and it's more likely than not that there is a genetic basis for autism in this child. He goes on to say that on Friday, June 15, 2007, he was present during a portion of a hearing to hear testimony from the Cedillo family's expert in the field of pediatric neurology, a doctor named Marcel Kisborn. During a break in the proceedings, this is the important part, Dr. Zimmerman says, I spoke with DOJ attorneys, and specifically the lead DOJ attorney, Vincent Matinoski, in order to clarify my written opinion. He goes on to say, I clarified that my written expert opinion regarding Michelle Cedillo was a case-specific opinion as to Michelle Cedillo. My written expert opinion regarding Michelle Cedillo was not intended to be a blanket statement as to all children and all medical science. I explained that I was of the opinion that there were exceptions in which vaccines could cause autism. More specifically, Dr. Zimmerman goes on to say in the sworn affidavit, I explained that in a subset of children with an underlying mitochondrial dysfunction, vaccine-induced fever and immune stimulation that exceeded metabolic energy reserves could, and in at least one of my patients did cause regressive encephalopathy with features of autism spectrum disorder. He goes on to say, I explained that my opinion regarding exceptions in which vaccines could cause autism was based upon advances in science, medicine, and clinical research in one of my patients in particular. The affidavit continues, Dr. Zimmerman says now that for confidentiality reasons, I did not state the name of my patient. However, I specifically referenced and discussed with Mr. Matinowski and the other DOJ attorneys that were present, the medical paper entitled Developmental Regression and Mitochondrial Dysfunction in a Child with Autism, which was published in the Journal of Child Neurology and co-authored by John Poling, MD, PhD, Richard Fry, MD, PhD, 
John Schaffner, MD, and Andrew Zimmerman, MD, a copy of which was attached to Zimmerman's current sworn affidavit. I'm going to leave this affidavit for a moment to say, Dr. Zimmerman is saying this paper about vaccines causing autism was co-authored with a, a doctor named John Poling. And remember I said Hannah Poling was a case the government had secretly and confidentially settled and sealed for vaccines and autism at this time. Well, the reason they settled this case instead of just saying the parents were crazy, I think a big reason is the father, John Poling, was a pediatric neurologist at Johns Hopkins. It was hard to call this guy a crazy, nutty, tinfoil hat parent. And by the way, the mother was a nurse and an attorney. And I think these were two parents that the government did a calculation about and said, we cannot convince the press that these are crazy, unhinged parents. And we probably can't convince the court this either, especially when the father is in this very line of medical science. Okay, back to the Zimmerman affidavit. He says, shortly after I clarified my opinions with the DOJ attorneys, I was contacted by one of the junior DOJ attorneys and informed that I would no longer be needed as an expert witness on behalf of HHS, the government. The telephone call in which I was informed that the DOJ would no longer need me as a witness on behalf of HHS occurred after the above reference conversation on Friday, June 15th, 2007, and before Monday, June 18th, 2007. To the best of my recollection, Dr. Zimmerman says, I was scheduled to testify on behalf of HHS on Monday, June 18th, 2007. So he's saying he was fired over the weekend before he could give this opinion or say anything about this in court. At the time of the above reference conversation with DOJ, I did not know, he says, that the Hazelhurst case or the polling case, two of his patients, were potential test cases in these giant omnibus proceedings to decide whether the vaccine court should compensate for injuries of autism. Dr. Zimmerman's affidavit continues. He says, it is my understanding the government's concession in polling versus HHS, that's the case where the government secretly paid the polling family for her autism, has become common knowledge and has been published by international news media. Among other news media coverage, I reviewed the CNN interview in which Dr. Julie Gerberding, then the head of CDC, discussed the concession by HHS in the polling case and the interview with Dr. John Poling. He talked to CNN at the time, the father of the child whose case was conceded. The summary language in this concession case that was sealed and kept confidential, but then later leaked to the press, the summary language was, quote, the vaccination significantly aggravated an underlying mitochondrial disorder, they're talking about in Hannah Poling, which predisposed her to deficits in cellular energy metabolism and manifested as a regressive encephalopathy, that's brain injury, with features of autism spectrum disorder, he goes on to say, that is in essence the chain of causation that I explained to the DOJ attorneys, including Vincent Matinoski, during the above referenced conversations on June 15, 2007. He continues, I have reviewed extensive genetic 
metabolic, and other medical records of William Yates Hazelhurst, in my opinion and to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, Yates Hazelhurst suffered regressive encephalopathy with features of autism spectrum disorder as a result of a vaccine injury in the same manner as described in the DOJ concession in the polling case, with the additional factors that Yates Hazelhurst was vaccinated while ill, administered antibiotics, and after previously suffering from symptoms consistent with a severe adverse vaccine reaction. Let me again break away from the affidavit for a moment. Dr. Zimmerman is saying what is known in the medical profession that whatever doctors think about vaccines and autism, it is not recommended that children get vaccinated while they are ill because it could cause additional problems. But Yates Hazelhurst was vaccinated while he was ill. There is some believed connection with the reaction and antibiotics, and Hazelhurst got antibiotics. And a lot of parents whose children go into autism after vaccination report that the children had previously suffered a severe adverse vaccine reaction, like the high-pitched screaming and so on. And these are all, as Dr. Zimmerman is saying in this affidavit, warning signs and perhaps contributing factors as to why when Hazelhurst, young Hazelhurst got his vaccines, he regressed into autism. Dr. Zimmerman goes on to say, I have reviewed an attached portion of a transcript of Vincent Mantinoski's closing argument, the DOJ attorney, in the Hazelhurst case, which is attached as Exhibit D. The relevant portion of the transcript states as follows. Now listen to this. This is what the DOJ attorney is telling the vaccine court in the absence of Dr. Zimmerman, who has already told them that vaccines can cause autism. Vincent Matnoski, the DOJ attorney, says, I did want to mention one thing about an expert who did not appear here, but his name has been mentioned several times, and that was Dr. Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman actually has not appeared here, but he has given evidence on this issue, and it appeared in the Cedillo case. I just wanted to read briefly because his name was mentioned several times by the petitioner in this matter, what his views were on these theories, and I'm going to quote from Respondents Exhibit FF in the Cedillo case, which is part of the record in this case as I understand it. To deviate for a minute and explain, the DOJ attorney is reading Dr. Zimmerman's opinion from a separate case that vaccines did not cause a particular child's autism. And Dr. Zimmerman has now explicitly told the Department of Justice that that opinion does not apply across the board to other cases. But that's just how they're using it, how this DOJ lawyer is using it in this Second case, the DOJ lawyer reads Dr. Zimmerman's opinion from a separate case saying, there is no scientific basis for a connection between measles, mumps, and rubella, MMR vaccine, and so on. And then the attorney concludes by saying to the court, we know his views on this issue. Dr. Zimmerman concludes his affidavit by saying, in my opinion, the statement by the DOJ's Mr. Matinoski during his closing argument regarding my expert opinion was highly misleading and not an accurate reflection of my opinion for two reasons. First, Mr. Matnoski took portions of my opinion out of context. My opinion as to Michelle Cedillo, a different case, was case-specific. 
I was only referring to the medical evidence that I had reviewed regarding her. My opinion regarding Michelle Cedillo was not intended to be a blanket statement to all children and all medical science. Second, Dr. Zimmerman says, as explained above, I specifically explained to Mr. Matnoski, the Department of Justice lawyer, and the other DOJ attorneys who were present that there were exceptions in which vaccinations could cause autism. In my opinion, Dr. Zimmerman says, it was highly misleading for the Department of Justice to continue to use my original written expert opinion as to Michelle Cedillo as evidence against the remaining petitioners in light of the above referenced information which I explained to the DOJ attorneys while admitting the caveat regarding exceptions in which vaccinations could cause autism. This was signed September 7th, 2018, and I'll bet, unless you watch Full Measure, you never heard about any of this, or if you heard something about it, you heard the sanitized version and the propagandized version that was put out with help of pharmaceutical industry interests. I hope you enjoyed today's deep dive podcast and that you will subscribe, review, and share Full Measure After Hours and check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast at justthenews.com. You can subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you believe that independent reporting is a dying thing, I sure hope you'll consider supporting it by ordering my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. The news as we once knew it no longer exists. It's become a product molded and shaped to suit the narrative. Facts that don't fit are omitted. Off-narrative people and views are controversialized or neatly deposited down the memory hole. Partisan pundits, analysts, and anonymous sources fill news space, leaving little room for facts. The line between opinion and fact has disappeared. In my book, Slanted, we have a lot of detail about the struggles going on inside newsrooms where journalism used to rule. For the first time, dozens of current and former top national news executives, producers, and reporters give their insider accounts, speaking with shocking candor about their industry's devolution. Americans know today's news diet is filled with fast food concoctions created from talking point recipes devised by partisan and corporate interests. I think they see that a record number of fact mistakes made by some of the world's most formerly well-respected media outlets, often with no apologies, that's a rampant syndrome. The media largely blames Donald Trump, but is the autopsy in slanted shows The death of the news as we once knew it is self-inflicted, and the weapon was the narrative. I hope you will order Slanted, pre-order it today, anywhere you like to order books. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.